Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME webcast. CME Outfitters LLC is the accredited provider for this continuing education activity. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly USA LLC. This activity is titled Clinical Challenges During Midlife Transitions and the Impact on Women's Health. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. Claudio Suarez and Dr. Jonathan Adachi. Dr. Suarez, our moderator for this activity, is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Academic Head of the Mood Disorders Division at McMaster University, as well as Director of the Women's Health Concerns Clinic at St. Joseph's Healthcare and McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Suarez has disclosed that he has received grants research support from Allergen National Institute of Excellence, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, the Canadian Institute of Health Research, Eli Lilly and Company, Hamilton Community Foundation, H. Lundbeck AS, the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression, Physician Services Incorporated Foundation, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Eli Lilly and & Company, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He is on the Speaker's Bureaus of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals, LP, Eli Lilly and & Company, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He is also on the advisory boards of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals, LP, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Eli Lilly and & Company, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Adachi is Professor of Medicine and Head of the Division of Rheumatology at the Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Adachi has disclosed that he serves as a consultant to Amgen Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly and Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck and Company Incorporated, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Nycomed, Pfizer Incorporated, Procter & Gamble, Roche, Santa Fe Aventis, Servier, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He has received support for clinical trials from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly & Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck & Company Incorporated, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Pfizer Incorporated, Procter & Gamble, Santa Fe Aventis, Roche, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Over the next hour, Dr. Suarez and Dr. Adachi will lead us through their presentation. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 401 or call 877-CMEPROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. So hello and welcome to the Clinical Challenges Doing Midlife Transition and Impact of Women's Health. I'm Claudio Suarez. I'm a social professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences and also the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the Academic Head of the Mood Disorders Division at McMaster University, and Director of the Women's Clinic at St. Joe's Healthcare at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Here with me is Dr. Rick Adachi. Dr. Adachi is a Professor of Medicine and Head of the Division of Rheumatology for the Michael DeGroote School of Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Adachi is also one of the leading researchers in the field of osteoporosis, and I'm looking forward to his insights on this important topic. Welcome, Dr. Adachi. Um, a woman's midlife transition from perimenopause through postmenopausal uh, years brings a period of vulnerability for not only physiological but also symptomatic changes that will affect physical and mental health. This group of women is a fast-growing segment of the population. It's important for us as clinicians to recognize the challenges faced by women during midlife transitions and what impact those transitions can have on their health. While there are many challenges today, Dr. Adachi and I are going to focus on three key areas, depression, osteoporosis, and vasomotor symptoms. Okay, let's get started. Let's first take a moment on to review the objectives for the program that we have today. 
Our first objective will be to examine the latest evidence related to hormonal-related changes and the continuum of care that is needed to appropriately take care of those patients. We will discuss the impact of untreated vasomotor symptoms, osteoporosis, and depression in midlife women. And finally, we will compare and try to contrast treatment options that we have to help you manage those conditions. So let's begin with our first learning objective to examine the latest evidence on the recognition and management of hormone-related changes that can affect women during midlife and the continuum of care that it's needed to appropriately uh, take care of those patients. So if you look at the next slide, the menopausal transition and early postmenopause is a window of vulnerability. Uh, women are actually, during menopausal transition, facing a, a constellation of issues and symptoms that can really affect their quality of life and functioning. Uh, and we have here some evidence, um, sometimes uh, very strong evidence or suggestive evidence through clinical trials and, and epidemiologic studies showing a variety of symptoms and domains that can be affected in menopausal women. Interestingly, if you look at the next slide, uh, with, uh, with advance of the Women's Health Initiative study, uh, many women who are very comfortable using hormones or many professionals, uh, physicians uh, who are very comfortable prescribing hormones became more cautious or reluctant to either prescribe or to stay on hormonal therapy. Some women decided to pursue lower doses or shortest duration of treatment, and a lot of women decided to discontinue uh, either abruptly or, or gradually the hormonal therapy that they were uh, receiving before. As a result, we have a significant uh, number of women who were affected by uh, that discontinuation of hormonal therapy and became more symptomatic. Interestingly, there is evidence um, through different studies looking at structural brain volumes uh, that suggest that estrogen could have a, a potential protective effect uh, in, in women uh, in menopause years or postmenopause years. Uh, the next slide basically shows a very interesting study by, by Lord and colleagues looking at a hypocampal volume in women who were exposed to estrogen, whether they were estrogen users, past users, or never users compared to men at the same age. And you can clearly see a correlation between exposure to estrogen and, and hypocampal volume, suggesting that maybe using estrogen had a, a protective effect or a restoring effect in, in the hypocampal volume of those women. It's also known that estrogen has a very important modulating impact on serotonergic norepinephrine functions. Uh, this slide is just reminding us of some of the many pathways uh, through which we know that estrogen can modulate and probably prime the serotonergic and norepinephrine uh, functions that we have uh, and, and basically probably have a very important effect in modulating uh, the response that we have in, in antidepressant agents as well. So, Dr. Soros, why is there such a spike in depression for women during the ages of 45 to 49, which is not seen in men? That's, that, that's a very important uh, point, Dr. Dachi, and, and y y you're absolutely right. If you look at this, this next graph, you clearly see uh, the spike in depression uh, in the female population at that particular age range, which actually coincides with the perimenopause or early postmenopause years. So one of the hypotheses, one of the suggestions is that uh, in times of hormonal uh, imbalance or intense hormonal fluctuations, some women will be at high risk for developing depression. Uh, and that would constitute a window of risk or a window of vulnerability for depression in that population, which it doesn't happen to the male population, which is not really uh, exposed to so many hormonal changes in, in a very um, intense uh, period of time. And let's review some of the key points related to that window of vulnerability. So that's clearly... Uh, some points are important to look at. The, the community-based surveys uh, are really, really suggesting not only that women are high risk for developing um, uh, symptoms of depression or depressive symptoms or experiencing re-emergency of depression, but also they are suggesting that even among women who never had depression before, you do have a high risk for a new onset of depression. Are there also windows of opportunity that we need to be aware of? Absolutely. I think uh, one thing that's important to know is once you recognize that uh, that window of time, in a window in time for the menopausal years or early postmenopausal uh, years might constitute a time for high risk for depression, perhaps by looking at hormonal interventions or, or trying to modulate the risk by hormonal interventions, we might even control the risk for, attenuate the risk for, 
for depression. And I don't think that is actually uh, exclusive to depressive symptoms. We also see windows of opportunity to use estrogen therapies uh, in, in patients from the cardiovascular protection point of view and, and probably memory and cognition as well. So we, we outline um, some of those issues here, but I also want to uh, catch uh, the, the, the audience's attention to some of the resources that we have for guidelines on hormonal replacement therapy. So the next slide is basically showing some of the uh, websites and, and sources of information about hormonal replacement therapy and evidence-based practice guidelines on how to use HRT. Okay, let's move to our second learning objective, which is uh, to describe the impact of untreated vasomotor symptoms, osteoporosis, and depression in midlife women. Uh, the next slide is actually uh, showing that some of the common symptoms that we see uh, in depression. That comes from a, a state of the science meeting uh, promoted by NIH back in 2005 when they were looking at the evidence for the so-called so core menopausal symptoms or brain, so to speak, symptoms associated with the menopause. And there was enough evidence at that point that vasomotor symptoms and, and sleep disruption, uh, either related or not related to half flashes, is, is strong evidence for that to be part of that uh, core group of symptoms. In 2005, uh, there was not enough evidence to support the higher risk for depression in that population, but that became pretty much evident uh, in the year after that, in 2006, with the publication of two large cohort studies suggesting a higher risk for depression in the population of perimenopausal women. And, and the, the important um, piece of the information from, the, from that uh, state of the science and NIH and, and from the clinical experience that we have is to uh, the co-occurrence of core menopausal symptoms that we have that might be very challenging for clinicians or physicians to really identify and recognize the key aspects uh, that are affecting patients' quality of life and functioning. And the next slide is really uh, addressing that. You're looking at half flashes, sleep, and depression coexisting and really making uh, a real dilemma, clinical dilemma, how to address that, what to tackle first when you have a symptomatic menopausal woman uh, in, in front of you. As a, as a patient, a potential patient. Uh, the next slide is looking at increased risk for first episode of depression during menopause. And we can see here that there's an extremely high percentage of women who develop a first episode of depression compared to women who remain premenopausal. This was a large cohort study of women who were premenopausal, ages 36 to 44, who were recruited uh, in, the, in the Boston area, in Cambridge, in, in Massachusetts, in the U.S., and they were prospectively followed for a certain number of years uh, and carefully assessed during that uh, number of years in terms of uh, hormonal changes, psychological changes, quality of life, and, and, and emergency of menopausal symptoms or any changes that will suggest in the menopausal transition. And interestingly, when uh, women were compared uh, by menopausal staging, uh, based on menopausal staging, those who remained premenopausal had a, a risk considered the, the basic risk. And as we compare those who became perimenopausal to women who remained premenopausal, there was a significant increased risk for developing first onset of depression. But even more uh, interestingly, those who had severe or significant vasomotor symptoms had even a higher risk for developing depression, suggesting a, a connection or some sort of a relationship or interaction between hot flashes in depression in that population, which leads to maybe different pathways to develop depression uh, in, in among menopausal women. One could argue that depression in the population is primarily driven by hormonal changes and significant changes in estradiol levels could lead to uh, emergency of uh, significant hot flashes and eye sweats, the so-called vasomotor symptoms, that could then uh, lead to significant sleep disruption and patients facing broken sleep and frequent awakeness at night would then feel uh, pretty much fatigued and tired next day and more dysphoric, more irritable, and that could lead to depression. So that's a classic domino effect, so to speak, from hormonal changes to hot flashes, deep disruption, and depression. The problem with this pathway as the only answer to, to depression in that population is that the fact that some women end up developing depression even in the absence of uh, having hot flashes or, or sleep disruption. So there's probably a direct effect uh, 
or direct interaction between hormonal changes and uh, uh, the onset of depression in the population that can be modulated by hot flashes and sleep disruption, but doesn't depend on hot flashes and sleep, and sleep disturbances to occur. Uh, without disregarding all the stressful life events or changes from the psychosocial point of view that could also modulate or attenuate or exacerbate the risk for some of our patients. It's a multi-layer, multi-facet uh, phenomenon that really makes it um, stimulating from the research point of view, but very challenging from the, the clinician point of view to address that. So do you take a different approach to depression during the menopausal window? You know, it's it's interesting, Dr. Dachi, because I'm really trying to tailor my my treatment and discuss that very carefully with my patients to really adjust that to what the major complaints are, the major challenges that they face in their quality of life. And I think it's a key point to consider very, very important during that window. One is that hormonal strategies, even though they have been uh, classically used and have indication for vasomotor symptoms or menopausal symptoms or, or to modulate sexual uh, functioning or sometimes reduce some of the, the physical discomfort associated with dryness and et cetera, they can also be helpful for menopausal-related depressive symptoms. Even though it's an it's a off-label use of estrogen, there are several studies really showing a positive impact of estrogen on, on depressive symptoms. And we're going to be discussing, um, uh, we discussed that a little bit before, and it's a, it's a very important point to keep in mind. The flip side of that is uh, no hormonal strategies, which sometimes are less controversial and, and, and becoming more stream, uh, mainstream options for for menopausal women or symptomatic menopausal women. When you use a no hormonal strategy, you can also benefit from those um, treatments to improve menopausal-related somatic symptoms. In, in other words, if a menopausal woman is uh, very symptomatic, having painful symptoms or, or pain or chronic pain or, or having significant hot flashes or night sweats or, or vasomotor symptoms, or even having a disruption in, in the sleep pattern caused by night sweats or hot flashes. The use of no hormonal strategies can be very helpful, and, and we have uh, evidence of several psychotropic agents actually having positive impact on menopausal symptoms, not only antidepressants, SSRIs or SNRIs, but also atypical antipsychotics. There are some studies looking at um, different atypicals for that. There are studies looking at gabapentin or clonidine. So there are several non-hormonal strategies. Uh, unfortunately, most of them or all of them uh, are off-label, but they, they can be part of your armamentarium, your, your, your toolbox, so to speak, for, for menopausal symptoms. And the bottom line is that uh, physicians should always keep in mind that menopause-related symptoms, hot flashes, sleep disruption, uh, they are not only uh, someone else's business. I and mean, psychiatrists are very sometimes focused on, on depression or depressive symptoms, but they, those symptoms can really affect uh, uh, the risk for depression. They have been shown to be associated with a higher risk for developing depression and really affecting quality of life. So it's very important to uh, pay attention to those symptoms either as predictors of depression or actually modulators of depression in a population. And finally, uh, the, the intriguing evidence that uh, age and, and, and age groups and maybe menopausal staging can affect antidepressant response, uh, that's a very important thing to keep in mind. I think it's even more important when you're dealing with a specific patient who um, had a very good response to uh, a specific antidepressant and then as she transitions to um, late perimenopause, early postmenopause years, um, she might notice a, a reduction in efficacy or, or exacerbation of symptoms. Knowing that there is a rationale for that to happen, there's some evidence that uh, aging and, and, and changes in menopausal staging can be associated with changes in efficacy or effectiveness of antidepressants. It's so very important to keep that in mind. Um, for those who are for more interested in learning more about you know the whole connection about treatment of vasomotor symptoms and depression, and there's a slide here showing various resources that are available for guidelines on treating vasomotor symptoms and depression in menopausal women. So there's the North American Menopause Society website um, uh, or NAMS. So it's very interesting information. There is a, an update on menopause and osteoporosis uh, uh, published by SOGC. Uh, University of Texas actually has a practice strategies for diagnosing and treating depression in women, uh, a very interesting program. And finally, the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy, um, very interesting information on treatment of depression in women. I'd like now to turn the floor over to Dr. Dachi, 
who's going to discuss a little bit of uh, the issues related to osteoporosis in, in midlife women. Dr. Dachi, what do we need to know, really, to pay attention to osteoporosis? Well, you know, for the longest time, we've looked at osteoporosis as a natural part of aging. And, in fact, we've not looked at the fact that this does cause significant uh, morbidity and mortality. Indeed, when we take a look at our CHEMO study, this is a, a random sample of the Canadian population, um, we find, in fact, that one in four uh, individuals who sustain a hip fracture will die within five years of sustaining that fracture. Now, that's not unknown, but what we did show as well was the fact that with vertebral fractures, one in six individuals will die within five years of having sustained a vertebral fractures. Uh, again, I think that this just shows the importance of fractures and the fact that they do cause not just pain, but there is associated death uh, with, with these fractures. Uh, probably even greater uh, in terms of significance in men because mortality rates in men are greater than they are in women. If you take a look at between the ages of 60 and 69, 70 and 79, and 80 years of age and older, we can see here, in fact, that men are fracturing, and men who have fractures are at greater risk of dying from those fractures than are women. We take a look at what are the major risk factors for fracturing, and I'm sure that all of you have been presented with many long and large lists of major risk factors for fracturing. And one of my colleagues, a family practitioner, said, um, what are the major risk factors, though, Rick? I mean, we've got huge lists of, of, of risk factors, but give me something simple. And I think that some of these major risk factors are intuitive. So the older you are, the more likely you are to fracture. If you had a previous fracture, you're at greater risk of having a fracture. It's just like having a heart attack. The person who's at greatest risk of having a heart attack is a person who's already had a heart attack. Likewise, with osteoporosis and osteoporotic fractures, the person who's had a previous fracture is the one that's at greatest risk of having a subsequent fracture. Bone mineral density, again, intuitive. Those who've got high bone density are less likely to fracture, where those who have low bone density are more likely to fracture. And then finally, if you can remember it, one of the things that may well be important is a family history of hip fracture. So if you've got a mother or a father uh, who's had a hip fracture, you're more likely to have a hip fracture. But Dr. Dachi, are patients with hip fractures actually being treated? Is it, there's some suggestions that uh, women up to 40% are not getting treatment, or even men uh, up to 60% are not getting treated for, yeah. for hip fractures. You know, that's a very good point. Uh, as medical students, we're always taught that hip fractures are associated with significant mortality, and if anything, we're, we're talking about patients who really require therapy. When we take a look at CAMOS, CAMOS is our large database, and we followed patients over time, we found that in the first year of the study, about 50% of women who'd had a hip fracture were being treated, but that means that 50% were not. You can also see that it, with men at the baseline year, we found that 90% of men who'd had a hip fracture were not being treated. And so you can see that over time, as we educated more and more physicians, we see, in fact, that treatment improves. So that by year five, close to 60% are being treated. But that means that 40% still are not being treated. And when we take a look at the men, 60% of men are still not being treated after five years. And this suggests, in fact, that there is a very large uh, care gap that still needs to be overcome. But what would be the best way to close that gap? Are there any guidelines related to the impact or risk of osteoporosis that could be used? Yes, there are a number of guidelines that have been uh, put forward. The ones that are probably most well-known are the National Osteoporosis Foundation practice guidelines, and they've just recently uh, published updated guidelines. There's the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. There are guidelines for the clinical practice for the prevention of postmenopausal osteoporosis. And the American College of Rheumatology will be uh, releasing uh, further guidelines uh, looking at quality measures for um, osteoporosis. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Dacci. Well, we're now uh, ready to move on to our third and, and final learning objective to really compare 
and contrast some of the treatment options to help managing all these conditions that we've been discussing. We're going to start that by looking at estrogen therapy and its application in menopause-related depression. And, and that's an important topic, very dear to my heart. I've been a lot of, spending a lot of my years as a, as a researcher and clinician looking at the potential benefits, uh, risks and benefits of using estrogen in a population of uh, depressed patients. But it's very important to to highlight here that when we talk about estrogen being used as, a, as an antidepressant strategy, we're definitely discussing an off-label use of estrogen. What, what we see here in this slide is a, a summary of some of the, the clinical trials that have been conducted over the last few years, uh, looking at different populations or subpopulations of women, either perimenopausal or peri- and postmenopausal, who had a diagnosis of a major depressive disorder, uh, minor depression, or even dysthymia, a more chronic uh, form of depression, that were uh, treated in a randomized uh, double-blind fashion, placebo control, or were treated uh, in an open fashion with astrodial. Um, And and we see here a series of studies, and you're looking at three positive studies. What's interesting in in this um, slide is a quick look at it. You see that uh, the studies that have a very significant positive impact of estrogen for the population of uh, depressed women, midlife women, were primarily in, in perimenopausal women, uh, which uh, gives back to the point we were discussing before about the window of opportunity uh, to use estrogen, probably when women are actually facing very intense, sometimes chaotic hormonal changes that seem to be at least a modulating factor or a driving force to increase the risk for depression at that point. So they use a transdermal astrodial, uh, either 50 or 100 micrograms in, in clinical trials, short clinical trials, a small a number of uh, uh, study participants, but nonetheless, a very robust response compared to placebo. Uh, interestingly, the response to uh, estrogen or estradiol in terms of depressive symptoms was not associated with hot flashes. So in one of those studies, uh, they were able to recruit women with or without hot flashes. There was no direct association between uh, responding to estrogen and having or not having hot flashes. And the second study, uh, it was done in our lab looking at estrogen for a population of 50 perimenopausal women. The response rates or emission rates were very, very significant, 68% on, on estradiol compared to 20% on placebo. And we followed that study with a washout period when women actually stopped using estrogen for, or placebo for uh, a month, and they were reassessed after a one month of a, a washout period. And interestingly in that study, uh, there was a significant recurrence or re-emergency of hot flashes, but not of depression. So they, they actually had a sustained positive impact of estrogen despite going on the withdrawal for a month, which did not happen uh, in terms of hot flashes, suggesting that maybe the mechanisms by which estrogen can help depression are independent from those, or at least uh, separate from uh, the classic effects that we have on hot flashes. The next slide shows some uh, mixed or negative results when you use estrogen for the same population with a little bit of a, a twist here. And when you look at um, the negative results uh, or the mixed results of those two trials, they are primarily focused on postmenopausal women or mixed menopausal staging women. And even though they are looking at the same um, estrogen preparation or the same pathway or, or administration route, which is transdermal, um, they are not showing the same positive results that the three first studies that we we look at. So one question here is, is uh, that you might ask is whether we are dealing with different populations or subpopulations. And there are some speculations that uh, when you use estrogen in postmenopause years, particularly women who are in the late postmenopause years, you might not have the same benefits in terms of uh, mood enhancement or antidepressant effects. Uh, so one could argue that uh, there, is a, there is a time to use it, and, and, and if you miss that window, you may have a more harmful effects of estrogen than any beneficial impact or effects on mood, uh, mood enhancement, which is actually very uh, intriguing and very similar to uh, the discussions we have in different areas, in, particularly in cardiovascular disease, when uh, the earlier the better. So there's a discussion whether the intervention with hormonal therapy should be done in the very early stages of the menopausal transition or early postmenopausal years as opposed to uh, using estrogen uh, later on. The next slide is just a, a, 
a, a closer look at the first study that I mentioned that came from our uh, our lab looking at estrogen-based uh, therapy, transdermal estradiol, uh, in a 12-week trial, uh, clearly showing a significant impact on depression compared to placebo. And that's a study that showed basically uh, remission rates uh, similar to what we see with antidepressants compared to placebo. Very encouraging, very thought-provoking. Unfortunately, published very close to the WHI studies, which was uh, probably uh, uh, one of the reasons why we don't have um, a continuous effort to explore estrogen therapy as a, as a potential antidepressant agent, or at least an add-on strategy for depression, because physicians and the researchers became more reluctant to pursue hormonal strategies for depression. And the next slide is it's, a, it's an interesting study. It's a small study that we published a few years ago looking at a population of depressed menopausal women who are randomized to use either hormonal therapy, a preparation of a oral estradiol, uh, plus Nordic syndrome, or to use an SSRI, uh, an antidepressant acetaloprine. Uh, and all these women were actually uh, diagnosed with major depressive disorder. They also have menopausal-related symptoms that could be uh, alleviated by estrogen or help with the use of estrogen. So they were randomly assigned to either treatment, a hormonal or non-hormonal strategy. And in this particular case, uh, women who were treated with antidepressants had a significant um, better response or or impact when they use antidepressants compared to hormonal therapy. And one of the, the questions that we had back then was whether uh, a less robust response to hormones here in patients who are suffering from depression was related to the oral use of estrogen as opposed to transdermal. An interesting hypothesis or speculation, but it needs to be further investigated. The interesting part of this slide, though, is the equal positive effects of uh, an antidepressant or hormonal therapy on quality of life measures. So when you look at the menopause, which is a menopausal-specific quality of life scale, both treatments, either the hormonal treatment or the antidepressant treatment, have very positive impacts on symptoms or quality of life measures and among those patients. So that's good news for women who are unable or unwilling to pursue hormonal therapy and and need to be uh, on medication for depressive and menopausal-related symptoms. So they might benefit from using antidepressants to alleviate some of the menopausal symptoms, although the exclusive use for menopausal symptoms will be an off-label use. But if they have depression with concomitant menopausal-related symptoms, chances are they are having some alleviation of those symptoms, whether they use hormonal therapy or they decided to use antidepressants. Looking at this graph, it's clear that in women not undergoing HRT, that their response to SNRIs is improved as their age increases. Do you find that to be true for men as well? No, that's a, that's a very good point, Dr. Dashi. We it, the, the slide is basically showing the difference uh, between the efficacy of SSRIs compared to SNRIs and placebo in, in women who are 50 years and, or older with or without HRT on board, with or without hormonal replacement therapy, you see that the gap really uh, becomes wider in women who are not on HRT, but it's really narrowed down to less than 10% in women who are using SSRIs and HRT. So it's, it's, it's suggesting in, in a kind of a thought-provoking way that uh, women to a certain degree benefit from estrogen on board in, in the premenopause or early postmenopause years for their response to uh, SSRIs, and as they get older or become postmenopausal, they lose their priming impact or priming effect of estrogen for the serotonergic function. And the suggestion here is that the SNRIs wouldn't be that uh, vulnerable uh, to the impact of estrogen, so the response seems to be more consistent across different ages uh, without being affected by using estrogen or having estrogen on board. So that's the, although it's very thought-provoking and intriguing, and I think we need more data to really uh, characterize different responses in different age ranges. But it's very suggestive that maybe SSRIs would be more sensitive, more vulnerable to hormonal changes in terms of effectiveness. Uh, and because we don't have that hormonal fluctuation in, in men and so intense as we have in midlife women or early postmenopausal women, they wouldn't be affected by. Uh, by age uh, or changes in, in age-related uh, groups as, as much as we see in the female population. Is there a strategy for increasing response to antidepressants in older women who are on HRT? That's, a, that's an excellent question. That's one of the areas of research in our lab and different labs. We really try to identify 
better ways to tailor response to antidepressants in women who are using HRT or women who are deciding to discontinue HRT. I think the biggest question here is not whether uh, there will be an ideal antidepressant for that population, but it's really to identify those who are more particularly at high risk for developing depressive symptoms or worsening of depression as they transition to menopause or become postmenopausal, or for those who actually discontinue hormones and, and might be more more vulnerable for depression. That's uh, that's um, something that was clearly uh, stated or observed in a very interesting study published a few years ago, uh, almost four years ago now, by uh, Roger McIntyre, some colleagues from, from Toronto in Canada, when they were looking at prescription rates or prescription patterns of HRT and antidepressants um, in Ontario, Canada, before and after the WHI uh, study, before and after the the, the primary results of the WHI were published in 2002. If you look at the slide, you see the period number one and period number two. Period number one is reflecting what happens with what happened to prescription patterns before the WHI, and then period number two is really reflecting what happens afterwards. And you clearly see stable uh, lines or patterns of um, antidepressant prescriptions, particularly SSRIs here, serotonergic agents, and HRT prescriptions. Then the WHI results were published in 2002. The first results really being very discouraging of uh, keeping women on HRT or using estrogen therapy. It was probably an overreaction by uh, both colleagues and, and patients, um, very cautious or reluctant to stay on estrogen. As a result, we had a significant decline in HRT prescriptions over the next uh, period of a uh, year and a half. But that decline in HRT really coincided with a significant incline or, or increase in use of antidepressants at the same time. So that was very... Uh, intriguing when we saw those results, when uh, Dr. McIntyre saw those results and colleagues, because um, one could speculate that as women are coming off of estrogen, they became more vulnerable, more symptomatic for developing uh, not only physical symptoms, but also uh, depressive symptoms or symptoms of anxiety. So we became very curious to uh, know whether there is a particular better way to address those cases of women who are discontinuing hormonal therapy and becoming more symptomatic, either from the somatic point of view or from the psychiatric point of view. So we we decided to uh, pursue a, a study looking at um, patients who are discontinuing hormonal therapy and becoming symptomatic. And within that period of discontinuation, we will be randomized to use placebo or an antidepressant. And, and we published this study a few years ago. And if you look at the slide, it's basically showing that the use of an antidepressant here, paroxetine, uh, led to significant reduction in symptoms that emerged in the context of hormonal discontinuation. So most women will go through that discontinuation of HRT, whether elective or not. Um, they might become more or less symptomatic, but among those who become very symptomatic, uh, using an antidepressant during that time uh, led to alleviation of symptoms, uh, both emotional and physical, as opposed to um, using placebo. So again, uh, uh, an off-label use of antidepressant in that particular situation that could have a very positive impact on patients' quality of life and functioning. We also pursued several other studies looking at using of antidepressants in a population of menopausal women. And we're always um, interested in looking at the impact of antidepressants, not only for depressive symptoms, but also for menopausal symptoms, including vasomotor symptoms and sleep complaints and overall quality of life. The next two slides are really reflecting one of those studies that uh, Dr. Joffe, Hedin Joffe, and I published um, from a sample size that we analyzed both in Canada and in U.S. And here, looking at patients who were um, uh, using placebo in a single-blind fashion for two weeks, and, and when we detected those who were considered placebo responders, they were eliminated from the study. They were actually excluded from the study. And then we, we pursue an eight-week trial open label among placebo non-responders with the use of duloxetine, an SNRI, looking at not only the impact of the, um, this agent for the treatment of depression, but also very interesting looking at uh, secondary outcome measures, including um, quality of life issues, uh, menopausal-related symptoms, sleep, but also looking at the impact on hot flashes on daily functioning. And we use for that the hot flash-related uh, daily interference scale which is a scale that is quite often used in, in breast cancer research and that tries to measure the extent to which patients are affected by hot flashes in several domains in their lives. And you, you, you can see that in the slide here that the use of medication has a 
significant positive impact or, or significant advantage for patients to reduce the the degree to which they were disabled by hot flashes or impaired by hot flashes in several domains, but also several other scales or, or, or scores that we use to measure psychological symptoms, somatic symptoms, vasomotor symptoms, uh, and looking at sexual dysfunction or sexual function as a result of being menopausal or using antidepressants. And all those domains or scores or subscores were um, were actually positively affected by using antidepressants. In other words, there was a significant reduction in, in impairment or disability caused by menopausal symptoms, uh, hot flashes and ice sweats, but also significant improvement in psychosocial aspects, um, vasomotor symptoms, and sleep in a population of depressed women uh, suffering from menopausal symptoms. And finally, we have uh, another slide uh, looking at a different way to approach menopausal symptoms. This is a slide on on the study that we conducted a few years ago uh, on azopiquone, which is a sleep agent um, for women who are suffering from insomnia in the context of having um, uh, menopausal symptoms. So in that study particularly, uh, we, we randomized patients to use uh, azopiquone or placebo for four weeks, and, and the primary measures were all sleep measures, uh, and, and not a surprise that an agent that has been uh, shown to be effective for insomnia has an indication for insomnia, uh, had a very positive impact on insomnia in those patients. So we're looking at the wake time after sleep onset, which is a wasso time, which is a good measure of how disrupted or broken sleep your patient um, may have. You see a very positive impact, a significant uh, reduction in wasso time uh, and improvement in sleep quality in patients using isopiclone compared to placebo. But we were actually very curious to see whether that would reflect in, in, in improving our sleep or night sweats in, in that population. In other words, whether by helping patients to sleep better through the night, we have a positive impact on number of awakenings caused by hot flashes or per perception of hot flashes. And indeed, we found that using by using isopiclone compared to placebo, patients had a significant reduction in total awakenings, so they slept better through the night. They did not notice or perceive a significant awakenings caused by hot flashes although the the perception of severity of hot flashes remain the same. So I, I see that as a, as a, one of the creative ways that we might have to address uh, sleep disruption or, or sleep problems in the menopausal women, particularly when they have significant hot flashes and ice sweats. So in that population, even though they were not treated with hormonal interventions or any other interventions for menopausal symptoms, we helped them to sleep better through the night with the, with the help of a sleep agent and then has a significant impact on next day functioning and quality of life. So we've talked a little bit about the WHI and um, in osteoporosis, the WHI really was a very important study because it was probably the first randomized double-blind uh, study that showed, in fact, that hormone replacement therapy was a benefit in terms of reducing uh, hip fractures. One of the, a couple of the um, limitations of this study is the fact that um, the study did not talk about pre-existing fractures, baseline DMD, uh, calcium or vitamin D intake, or the use of uh, bisphosphonates. We also didn't have a good idea of the age distribution of fractures, but with all of those limitations, uh, aside, this was the first RCT that shows an actual effect of hormone replacement, uh, reducing the risk of hip fractures. But what about um, breast cancer? Because I, I I do get a lot of questions when we're discussing with patients they use or no use a hormonal replacement therapy in menopause years. The question about the risk of um, developing breast cancer is always uh, a common one and a very important one. Can you speak to us? Um, about the effects of HRT on breast cancer. Is there any increased risk of developing uh, breast cancer when patients are undergoing HRT based on the WHI study or based on your your experience as well? Yeah, you know, again, this is an excellent question. And these are the things that clinicians face day to day. We really need to be talking about the risks and benefits of the therapies that we offer. When we take a look at the WHI, and this is the arm that looked at estrogen and progesterone, when we take a look at it, there were eight additional events of breast cancer per 10,000 uh, uh, women, uh, women per year. So if you 
put it in that context, the, there is a slight increase in the risk of breast cancer. Likewise, there's a slight increase in the risk of uh, venous thromboembolism, stroke, and coronary heart disease. But if you take a look at the numbers for coronary heart disease, it's seven additional events. For stroke, eight additional events. And for VTE, venous thromboembolism, 18 additional events. On the other side of the coin, though, is the fact that um, HRT did seem to reduce the risk of, of uh, colorectal cancer, and indeed it reduced it by six events. Um, and hip fractures here, you can see it reduced it by five, five events per 10,000 uh, women per year. And the, the, it was neutral in terms of endometrial cancer, so there weren't any additional or increased cases. And ultimately, if we're taking a look at death, death as the ultimate uh, uh, event, um, then you can see that there isn't any significant difference in terms of death rates. So at the end of the day, we're looking at very small relative risk then? Yes, and, and I think that what we as clinicians really need to do is, is educate our patients, give them the risks, and I think that when it comes down to decision-making around uh, therapies, it's going to be what that patient really wants. And if the dominant effect in that patient is, is really a fear of breast cancer, then probably this is not the best drug for them. On the other hand, there are many women who, as you pointed out, really do suffer from uh, menopausal symptoms. And for them, this, this may be the ideal drug. In addition to hormone replacement therapy, though, we have other therapies that are of benefit in terms of osteoporosis and specifically the prevention of fractures. In this next slide here, we take a look at the effects of raloxifene on vertebral fractures. And you can see um, that on the left-hand panel, you can see those who never had a, a uh, vertebral fracture, and on the right-hand side, you can see those with uh, prevalent vertebral fractures. There are a couple of things that I want to raise here. The first is the fact that, yes, if you've never had a fracture, we still have a beneficial effect, and indeed, we reduce your risk of fracturing by about 50%. On the other hand, if you present and you've had a previous vertebral fracture, you can see, in fact, that there still is a 30% reduction in, in fracture rate. One of the other things that this slide shows is that if you look at the placebo groups, and those without prevalent fractures and those with prevalent fractures, you can see, in fact, that there is a five-fold increase in the risk of, of having a, a fracture. So treatment, treatment even before you have a fracture is important. Next slide takes a look at the bisphosphonates and their effects on fracture. And I've listed four bisphosphonates here. Etidronate in the U.S. Is, uh, would be off-label use, but alendronate, residronate, and zoledronate have been approved for the uh, treatment of osteoporosis. And you can see that with all of these bisphosphonates, uh, in fact, they do reduce the risk of vertebral, non-vertebral, and hip fractures. The next slide takes a look at parathyroid hormonal, uh, parathyroid 1 to 34, and you can see here that parathyroid hormone is also a drug that is of benefit in terms of reducing fracture risk. Indeed, there is a significant and substantive reduction in vertebral fractures. Finally, if we take a look at the future, there is a new therapy that um, has been tested and that is being reviewed by the FDA at this point in time, and this is a drug called denosumab. And with denosumab, you can see, in fact, that there is a significant reduction in new vertebral fractures, uh, a 68% reduction, non-vertebral fractures, a 20% reduction, and in hip fractures, a 40% reduction. Thank you, Dr. Dasha. This brings us to the end of our program today. But before we go, I'd like to leave you all you with some clinical pearls that uh, I think you can take with you into your practice. And from, from my perspective as a psychiatrist who works in women's health, I think it's very important to keep in mind that hormonal changes may really contribute to the development of mood or sleep or somatic complaints. Across the female life cycle, we really pay attention to menopause today, but there's a lot of literature on hormonal changes increasing the risk for depression or anxiety during pregnancy and postpartum. Or even the premenstrual periods can also be affected by that. So patients who have depression and anxiety, for instance, may have a worsening or exacerbation of their symptoms either premenstrually or during pregnancy and postpartum. So maintenance of the hormonal environment um, might be a key factor uh, to help us to attenuate the risk or even to prevent the risk for developing mood symptoms 
and somatic complaints. So really understanding more about the role of the hormonal and non-hormonal strategies, it's very important for health professionals, not only uh, family doctors and, and, and obstetrics and gynecologists and ob but also for psychiatrists or any health professionals to really understand the, the, this complex interaction between hormonal changes or hormonal fluctuations and the, the onset of uh, mood and somatic symptoms in menopause. Um, could I ask Dr. Dach if he could um, uh, take us through some of the clinical pros that he would recommend to clinicians from his side? So when we take a look at that, screening for uh, risk of fracture is important. One of the screening measures is bone mineral density. Uh, of course, it's re uh, probably important to remember that bone mineral density measurements of the hip predict fractures of the hip, and bone mineral density measurements of the spine uh, are better in predicting uh, fractures of the spine. I, I would say that all patients should have a total dietary calcium intake of at around 1,000 milligrams a day. Uh, likewise, some simple things that you can do, uh, you should avoid smoking and excessive alcohol intake, and you might consider non-pharmacologic interventions such as advocating regular weight-bearing exercise. Indeed, in my practice, I, I tell patients to find an exercise that they love to do because then they'll do it. We want to try and minimize the risk of falls and injuries uh, with gait and balance training, and the simple simple thing might be uh, things like Tai Chi. And then vitamin D is essential for the maintenance of bone health. When you, when you talk about vitamin D for, as a treatment for osteoporosis, what, what should audience actually be thinking about? Is it a specific treatment or is it an add-on strategy? I think that vitamin D is becoming more and more important as uh, time goes on. We've seen more research about this, and for the most part, experts are recommending around 1,000 international units of vitamin D. We see a lot of vitamin D deficiency, and we see it because uh, in Canada anyway, and certainly in the northern uh, climates, you don't get as much sunlight, and as a result of that, um, we not... Um, making as much vitamin D. And because of our concerns about skin cancer, many many people put on a lot of sunscreen, and sunscreen reduces uh, vitamin D production, uh, cuts it in half. Um, vit uh, vitamin D deficiency is common in patients with osteoporosis, and in one of our Canadian surveys, we found that 97% of individuals had vitamin D deficiency at some time of the year. Um, and so there are some special circumstances as well in which one might look at vitamin D deficiency occurring and that they occur, it occurs uh, at times when we're malabsorbing uh, or when we're on other drugs such as the anticonvulsants and uh, in, with some antituberculous therapies. Okay, well, this brings us to the end of our program. It has been a true pleasure to serve as a moderator today. And uh, I want to thank you. Uh, to our audience, but special thanks to my uh, colleague, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Richard Dachi, for for your expertise and, and the time today. And I would just want to suggest for for all the audience that we have additional educational um, activities. Please visit the www.neurosciencecme.com. You may have some um, interesting uh, access to uh, resources and activities there. And we wish you, everyone, a continued success in your practice. And thank you very much for, your, for sharing that time with us today. 